Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, former administrative fellow and current administrative director at Mass General Hospital, located in Boston, Massachusetts. I invite you to join me as I engage with leaders in various roles across the healthcare field to gain real-life insights into their work challenges, the skills that have helped them succeed, and advice on how to get started if this is a path for you. So what are you waiting for? Let's start the journey today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I am so delighted to be here with today's guest, Ann Presapino who is the Senior Vice President at Mass General Hospital and serves as a teaching associate at Harvard Medical School. Anne has worked at Mass General for over 40 years, holding several positions of increasing responsibility. She currently oversees many clinical academic departments and centers, strategic planning, and plays a leadership role assisting in the development of the Mass General Brigham system. Anne earned her BA in 1978 from Brown University before going on to receive her Master's of Public Health from the Yale School of Public Health in 1980. Anne, with all of that being said, I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for being here with me today. It's my pleasure, Yolanda. Thank you very much for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are now in your current position at Mass General Hospital? I currently actually am spending a lot of time in the educational space, um, working with our graduate medical education programs and our uh, our learning center uh, development, which has um, been just a joy and part of our overall strategic plan. So we've been working on implementation of that over the past several years, and there's lots of fun things going on there. And I should footnote, it really is meant to embrace all disciplines, uh, not just our physician trainees, but uh, all of the different disciplines and professionals that work at Mass General. Um, the other thing that is a, a major focus and I think really relates to some of the changes in our healthcare system is really uh, in the home-based care space. So whether we're talking hospital at home for the medical patient, surgical hospital at home, virtual observation units, uh, how we work with our visiting nurses, um, that whole body of work, I think we're going to see explode over the course of the next decade as more and more care is shifted, not only from the hospital setting to ambulatory care send- set, uh, settings, but also directly into patients' homes. Out of all the different things that are in your portfolio, how did you kind of land in the emergency preparedness space? So it's a great question. And, and actually, I should just uh, clarify that the portfolio has expanded, but it also changes. So some things have moved on to other senior leaders in the organization um, as I've taken on some new areas of focus. So it's really one of the fun things that working in a place like Mass General for so many years is the opportunity to um, be able to assist in many different aspects of the organization, as some of which stay with you under your leadership for long periods of time. Emergency preparedness is a great example of that. I'll get to that in a second. Others where you have an opportunity to, um, you know, work with the, with a specific team and uh, hopefully uh, move the agenda along, if you will. But um, because of reorganization issues and whatnot, it, it they may be better served by um, by moving to a different leader. And so I think that's been an important learning lesson and. Um, it's a wonderful way to get to explore many, many different uh, aspects of um, our delivery system here at Mass General and the Mass General Physician Organization. So emergency preparedness, uh, it's kind of a funny story. The first project that I ever was assigned when I came to Mass General, and I came in as a, basically a, a staff person to the chief operating officer right out of graduate school, was to rewrite the hospital's disaster plan. It was called disaster planning at the time. 
It was in a little red cardboard notebook and it was about an inch thick. And you can't really write a disaster plan unless you know how the place is supposed to work on a good day. So whether it was the intention of my new boss to really get me out there and learn clinical operations or whether, and, and you know, business and other, uh, what, what we might call some of the administrative operations of the institution as well, um, or whether it just was simply a project that needed to get done. It served me enormously well, both from really understanding you know, how things work uh, on a day-to-day -day basis across many, many departments and services and areas of the hospital. But then really uh, thinking through with critical leaders in each one of those departments uh, or centers or, you know, whatever aspect of the hospital we were talking about, what needed to be um, changed? What needed to be, did we need to prepare for should the worst happen? So everything from assuming a huge snowstorm, let's say, a recent uh, event here in Boston, um, that might delay supply delivery, those kinds of things, uh, the loss of hot water or heat, let alone uh, the kind of disasters where we might be receiving uh, victims of a major um, incident outside of the institution. So it really ran the full spectrum. And today I'm very proud to say that uh, over the years, um, with the help of many, many people, we have really converted to a full emergency preparedness plan. One of the critical tools interior to that is the Hospital Incident Command System, which is formally or affectionately known as HICS, if you will. And um, that's a tool that we put into place that really changes the organization um, leadership structure to be very hierarchical. And you really move from a collaborative uh consensus building kind of approach that we use in our day-to-day -day management system here at the institution to much more of a command and control. Because in many of these instances, you really need to, to make very quick decisions, uh, sometimes with very little information, and there's not the time to debate. And so that's when that tool is put into play uh, for the most part. It can be used for, for any and all kinds of uh, emergency situations. And it's important for me to footnote that our emergency preparedness plan really is what we refer to as an all hazards plan. So we can use parts of our plan for anything from snow emergency to mass casualty to pandemic. And would you say that naturally played to your strengths or did you say that by being involved in this project, you kind of like learned your strengths from working, you know, through that process? It was really, I think, a combination of both, quite frankly. Um, I remember coming out of grad school and being, um, you know, quite um, tentative, if you will, around certain uh, aspects of the work, because I, I didn't really, my previous experience in healthcare had really been much more in the research arena than it had been really in day-to-day -day operations. Mm -hmm. And so what I think uh, emergency preparedness did for me is certainly strengthen my own confidence and my ability to uh, be able to integrate uh, whatever information was possible and make sound decisions. Um, the other uh, thing though, that I think is true is that it did ultimately play to some of my personality strengths. I, um, people who know me well now would kind of chuckle if they heard me use the expression shy, but I really was at the beginning. And this kind of drew me out in many ways and uh, did play to leadership strengths that, you know, I, in more comfortable settings, I was very happy to, to uh, actually show and contribute in that fashion. And uh, over time, it's really strengthened, uh, I think, a lot of my leadership abilities, as well as really understanding and in, in such a, um, 
fascinating kind of, or through a fascinating lens, um, you know, what we have to think about in healthcare uh, under any one of a variety of situations, some of which are, are natural occurrences, some of which are man-made occurrences. I want to dive a little bit more into um, the hospital incident command system. And, you know, I know that you're being modest, but what the listeners may or may not realize is that you served as incident commander during a number of uh, devastating um, instances that occurred um, in and around the Boston area. Um, Some of those include uh, the Rhode Island Station nightclub fire, the Boston Marathon bombing, and most recently the COVID-19 outbreak. So can you tell us a little bit more about that system and then how it specifically relates to you in terms of your responsibilities in, in this position and maybe the key lessons that you've learned serving in that role? Great questions. Um, So uh, the system itself, uh, as I said, is very hierarchical in nature. And uh, the first thing that happened, and and I should footnote that it is also very much position-driven versus person-driven. So when we first introduced um, the incident command system at Mass General, we stood up major training uh, for literally hundreds of people. So currently there are about 200 people that uh, basically have a role to play in that overall system, whether it's the primary role or a backup role to someone who is primary. However, the way the system is structured, it literally contains you know, individual job sheets. So if you were to come in and, and uh, it was you and I here in the middle of the night uh, trying to deal with a situation, I would say, Yolanda, you need to be the operations chief and hand you that job description, which is very much just a bulleted, maybe uh, five to 10 bullet points that you need to think about first and foremost. And then when someone uh, was able to arrive at the institution, perhaps it had more experience or knowledge in that particular domain, we might flip the responsibilities to that person. So it's an opportunity to get started very quickly with whoever you have on site, as long as they've had that basic background training uh, in how the system works. Um, There are four major areas that work under the incident commander. Uh, One is operations, obviously. One is logistics, which deals with all of the supplies and the organization of laboratories and our imaging arena. One is uh, planning, which really is keeping track of everything that's going on and also is the group that takes on the responsibility for the development of a labor pool should that become necessary. And the fourth is finance, which some people kind of chuckle at, um, you know, in the middle of, of a situation, uh, are we worried about, uh, you know, keeping track with the same uh, degree of diligence that we do on a day-to-day basis? And the answer, quite frankly, is yes. So that even though you may be making decisions that have financial consequences, have, having someone as part of the team who has that financial expertise and can, in fact, keep track is really important. So when you're trying to understand the impact through that lens, subsequent to any kind of an event, you have the information. And in some instances, it's actually allowed uh, for us to apply for some relief funding from the federal government. So that has been an important consideration. There are a series of um, other important roles that play in both at the command level, as well as underneath each one of these four major areas that I just described that kind of puts the whole thing together. I would say in terms of learnings with this, um, there's some important, uh, really, really important lessons. And I'm gonna come back to the leadership point here. And it really comes down to the ability um, to uh, make decisions with um, some very, what, what I think most of us would consider um, insufficient or limited information and sometimes misinformation, quite frankly, and um, then being able to pivot as appropriate. Um, and it is an important skill set, and I think it is enabled the, 
by people that have deep experience and good judgment. So if you really understand how the institution works, um, you are much better able to uh, make those kinds of decisions. If you really um, have had to deal with uh, any one of a number of different kinds of situations on a day-to-day -day basis about operational challenges, you know, be it staffing, be it supply shortage, be it uh, perhaps um, challenging relationships between departments, you're just better able to be able to manage through that when you are, you know, in a disaster kind of scenario. The other thing is, so, so one major uh, lesson I think is uh, really learn um, how a place actually functions um, as a critical leadership skill. Um, that's necessary, I think, overall from a day-to-day -day basis, but certainly an emergency situation. Number two, I think, is the leadership uh, ability. Um, being able to um, have a strong presence in the room, being able to command the attention and the respect of others, but also being um, compassionate, being uh, a careful listener, being willing to take important input in terms of that decision-making is critically important. And I think, again, it serves in very good stead in day-to-day uh, -day leadership um, you know, kinds of scenarios. And the final thing I would say is communication. Um, we talk about this all the time. It is absolutely true and no more so than when you're in a crisis kind of situation. People want to know what's going on and they want to know what we're doing to respond and the ability and to make sure to keep that a top priority to use other experts in your uh, organization to help with taking on the communication responsibility but making sure that it is frequent making sure you're using all of the different vehicles um, and that you, you know you yourself are available to to answer uh, questions and concerns and be honest in the communications as well about what we may not know um, is really critically important I know that you probably have a set of guiding principles that you keep in mind when it comes to decision making. So can you tell us a little bit about this and does this change whenever you um, are in a crisis mode or do you find that it stays the same? I, I think I, I think it stays the same. I think uh, from the vantage point of, of uh, the guiding principle perspective. OK, I mean, first of all, you know, what's a critical question that needs to be answered? And, you know, what, what are we trying to solve for? That That's kind of central, whether it's crisis or non-crisis kinds of times, right? Um, and making sure we keep the focus on that because there can be a lot of extraneous uh, things that come forward in any one of these kinds of scenarios. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think is, you know, where you do have some time to gather input. It's not like as when you're serving as the incident commander that you're making any and all decisions completely unilaterally. It is important to try and get input from critical players. And that's an important part because there, there'll be a lot of people that want to contribute and how you, you balance that. And, and sometimes I think it is uh, a, an emotional response to uh, a crisis that people want to do something to help. And you can have an overload of people wanting to contribute to a decision. It's that, it's that judgment call in terms of who are the people that really know what's going on, again, versus people that simply need to voice their concern or their perspective and being able to limit that and manage that. And again, I think that comes down to good leadership in it, even in you know, the most fundamental meeting you might be chairing uh, during normal operations. Um, and I think you know, the third part is the ability to integrate the information that you're getting. And um, in times of non-crisis, you might say, even in leading a meeting or leading a, a project, um, 
there's some other people that I want to reach out to that I want to get some reaction uh, to maybe some of the proposed ideas or solutions. You don't have that luxury. That's where the difference is. You don't have that luxury frequently in these uh, different scenarios going forward. The pandemic raised a little bit of a different um, perspective since uh, depending on specifically what we were talking about, uh, we did have a little bit more time. And that, in my opinion, in some ways was a blessing and a curse because I think sometimes we overworked certain things that, that it was pretty clear we ended up circling back to what the, uh, the solution initially was proposed. But I think we quickly learned how to work through that and where there were things where we could spend a little bit more time versus things where, that needed to be acted upon uh, immediately. Final thing I would say is anticipation of what's coming next. It's a little harder in a mass casualty situation where you have to work very quickly, but certainly in the pandemic, very important. So as an example, um, the, the uh, summer after the first wave, if you will, uh, Dr. Bittinger, who is our overall system leader uh, for emergency preparedness and who also is the leader of the Center for Disaster Medicine at the Mass General, was already starting to talk about vaccines and preparing for vaccination. And I remember at the time thinking like, boy, he's being very optimistic. But was I glad that as the system leader, he was bringing that forward. And it made all of us start to think, you know, again, how would we address this? Um, should we have the benefit of vaccine being available? What is that debrief process look like? How do you, you know, gather the group together and think about like, okay, this is how we reacted. This is what went well. Like mm -hmm. how often do you check in with the team? Well, if you are, you know, in the middle of, of any type of situation where you have invoked um, the incident command system, one of the important principles is to have regular meetings with the, the leaders of those four domains that I described earlier. We decided during the pandemic, because there were so many people, especially in the first and second waves that were so worried about um, lack of good information and lack of understanding about what was going on, that uh, rather than use kind of a strict and restricted uh, regular communication among the leadership of the incident command system and then spread out the communication, we instituted daily calls where we had about 300 leaders across Mass General and the MGPO um, actually uh, listening in um, to what was going on during those briefings so that everybody had a chance to uh, understand what was happening. And we would always try and leave some time at the end. So from, you know, open questions from anybody who was on these Zoom calls uh, to, to have their concern raised and hopefully addressed by the group. And if it couldn't be immediately addressed, and certainly in time for the next call. Um, so that, that I think, um, you know, again, going back to the communication issue um, was a very important discipline that we invoked during the time that we had incident command stood up for um, the pandemic. But it is also a part with our regular meetings, whether it's a mass casualty event, a snow emergency, whatever else may be happening. Um, the, um, the subsequent to the event being over, if you will, in the case of the pandemic, I would say during the times of de-escalation, when we've had a little bit of, of a reprieve from, um, you know, the various variants of the, of the virus uh, coming forward and overloading us with patients, we've used those times to do a formal debrief. And um, that usually starts with the group that has been uh, most deeply involved. Um, but we also try to the extent that it's possible to reach out to individual departments and units to also debrief with them in terms of what their experience has been. And we bring all of that back 
summarize it, not only for record keeping purposes, but more importantly, mm -hmm. to say, all right, what are the elements of our plan that we can improve upon? And um, right now, for example, we have four or five major working groups that are looking and, and uh, taking the uh, problems and some of the early proposed solutions forward to really build them out so that we can integrate them into our emergency preparedness plan and make it better and stronger for the next event. That is, that's great. It sounds like it's always just a work in progress, which is very much like exactly. most things uh, across the board when it comes to healthcare, um, which is this process of continued improvement uh, time and time again. It, you know, I, I do want to circle back to the piece about communication, because, you know, some of the things that you mentioned before have been having frequent communication, being available. Um, if there's one thing I know about you, it's just, you're so responsive. And I think I still have like, Anne has so much going on and yet you are so responsive. You, your communication has always been on key. And so I just, how did you get to that level? Like, how do you, you know, miss everything kind of going your way? find ways to have that frequent communication or touch points with your team and with the organization? Well, it's, it's uh, sort of been taking advantage, I guess, of the, um, the various tools we have to communicate. I mean, there's nothing that beats the face-to-face -face communication, right? And then probably better, you know, the next step down is probably the telephone communication. And now we have email and we have Zoom and we have Teams and we have, you know, different ways that we can stay in touch. I think, you know, from my vantage point, I think probably one of my strongest skill sets is organization. And I've just, I've, you know, I, I attribute it largely to my parents, quite frankly, um, you know, and just uh, developing, you know, like good study habits, good work habits while in school and those kinds of things. And that's been, I've been able to carry that forward throughout my career. And, um, you know, being able to assess um, what's really important that you absolutely have to get done today, what can perhaps wait a little bit, but trying to just maintain uh, some of the basics of, um, you know, uh, good human courtesy, if you will. Um, oftentimes, I have found that, you know, uh, there may be a project or a particular issue someone's very concerned about, letting them know that you've received, you know, the, uh, the question, um, letting them know that you're working on it, even though you might not have an answer today, it might take a little while, but you will get to it and you will get back to them. That has made all the difference, I think, in, in developing, um, you know, uh, people appreciating, I guess, the fact that you are willing to make sure that, that um, they know that they have been heard and that you're gonna do your very best by them. And, um, and then staying true to that, quite frankly. And you know, if you don't know the answer, you know, either making really sure that you can direct them to somebody who has the information or seeking out that information on their behalf and getting back to them. And, and to me, it's just always seemed the right thing to do, the courteous thing to do. Um, and I have found, um, in a very um, wonderful way, just how much that has done to, you know, build credibility and trust. So when you do have to have sometimes a difficult conversation with someone who you've been able to help out on something else, um, their willingness to um, accept and know that you tried your best, even though you may be coming back with an answer that they don't really want to hear, uh, has made it so much easier. And that was not my intent when I started out. My intent was simply like it's the right thing to do to, you know, get back to somebody and to, and to be responsive. And quite frankly, the most fun part of all of these roles, as far as I'm concerned, are the interaction with others and like-minded people that have come to healthcare because they really want to do something um, of service, if you will, to others. So even as an administrator, sometimes the service is 
you know, two or three steps away from the patient to come back to that and to feel you're helping in some way by, you know, answering a physician's questions or helping a nurse with a particular thorny issue, um, you know, does provide some great satisfaction. It's so true. You've been at National for over 40 years and you have, um, you have led, you have coached, you have mentored a number of great um, leaders or students throughout the organization. I'm sure that there are certain traits or characteristics that stick out. You know, one of the ones that you mentioned was, you know, just making an effort and, and having that courtesy to circle back with the people that you're helping. Are there other um, key characteristics that have really stood out to you that you think are, that are a common factor for success for individuals in healthcare? I think that, and, and I always tell uh, young people that are coming forward that are potentially looking, you know, to find their niche in the world and that are thinking about healthcare, that genuine interest and um, curiosity, if you will, about uh, healthcare, about all the different um, professionals that participate in the healthcare environment, um, that's something that um, it, I think is just vital uh, because without that, um, I think that it can be very, very challenging in some of these different roles. But if you're genuinely interested, if you're enthusiastic, if you really want to learn um, and you care about, um, you know, things that relate to healthcare, no matter what department you're talking about, you know, how do you go about cleaning? The, the amount of square footage that an institution like Mass General represents, let alone how do you go about caring for patients, you know, in an operating room environment, just to use, you know, two examples. You've got to be genuinely interested. Um, and it's probably true in, in most aspects of life. But I find in healthcare where, you know, we, we, we often reference the fact that it is a team sport and it is. And if you're not an interested and contributing member of the team, you're not going to be successful. And um, I, I think that is the, the most important um, value that I look for when I'm interviewing people and to get a good sense of that based on what they've done or how they're answering certain questions that I might pose. I also think the communication skills are vital. And I always talk about communication in three ways. One is obviously verbal communication. Can you express your point of view, not only clearly, but also cogently? Um, writing skills obviously are critically important and learning how same thing you know you it, it's easier right to write the 50 page paper than it is to write the two page executive uh, summary of a complicated problem and third and as importantly are really active listening skills um, are you taking in and integrating the information that somebody else is providing um, you know to you uh, whether it's you know, everything from what they're saying to body language to, you know, other aspects of their behavior and really thinking about, you know, um, what am I learning from this individual? What are the challenges? What, you know, how are they feeling about this particular situation? So, it, you know, there's a little bit of the psychology here, if you will, I, I, you know, we could call it emotional intelligence, but I think that, you know, ultimately 90% of what gets done has a relationship basis to it in one way or another. I mean, the perfect business plan, but with no connectivity to the people that are going to make the ultimate decision, you know, going forward or not. Um, and they're seeing your real um, knowledge of the situation, your interest in completing whatever project you're trying to bring forward. Um, it's just going to fall flat. And so uh, really trying to look for those human skills are really, really important. 
obviously there are strong, you know, technical skills, depending on what particular role you're talking about that also have to be part of the package. But I really look first and foremost for, for the human skills, because I think they are, they are the most essential and um, can be hard to teach if they're, if they're, you know, by the time people are getting to the point where they are ready to enter the professional workforce. I know that there's been so many things you've learned and you talked a little bit about the lessons that you learned specifically when it came to um, crisis management or communication. But overall, when you look back on your career, is there one or two lessons that you that really stick out to you that you'd like to pass along to the next generation of healthcare leaders? I guess the first one would be is um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Uh, don't be afraid to uh, take a step, even though you may make a mistake. It's all, you know, it tried and true kind of uh, lessons that we've all learned that sometimes um, the most important lesson is, is where you fail and, and then how you recover from that. And so, you know, I, I, I think being willing to, um, you know, put yourself out there and um, getting out of that comfort zone and, and, as I say, asking the key questions and sometimes making decisions that you may feel a little bit shaky on and learning from them. I mean, if it goes well, there's lessons learned there too, but if it doesn't go well, what are you taking away from that and how do you bring that, you know, to the next, to the next level? Um, I think the other thing is just, um, you know, the importance of deep respect for the other person, whether they're in your discipline or another discipline, and even the most challenging and difficult uh, individual that you might have to deal with, um, they're here for a reason. They, you know, there's, there's a pearl there somewhere, which was some really good advice that one of our uh, senior physicians gave me a long time ago when I was first uh, sent off to talk to uh, another surgeon who was known as uh, very challenging. And, um, I approached the, the situation with respect and listened intently and found the pearl, um, you know, through a lot of other conversation, if you will. And, um, you know, ultimately ended up developing a very good relationship with the individual. So those are the, those are probably the two most important lessons that I would, I would, uh, say that I have learned and they have stood me well throughout the course of my career. Well, they certainly have. And I know that they will cer certainly go on to serve others uh, who are entering the field, whether that happens to be healthcare or not. I think that that advice is applicable in many areas. But I know we're uh, closing in on our interview, but I do have a couple of rapid fire closing questions sure. uh, really for us to just get to know you a little bit more as um as a person. And so I want to make sure there's actually one that I thought of that uh that kind of came up from the conversation we were having. And it really had to do with like building that strong presence and respect. Like how does someone build that? I mean, first and foremost, look to other leaders that you really admire and see how they conduct themselves, you know, in a meeting, in a room, in a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, everything from, you know, where do, where do they sit at the table? Um, how do they lead the meeting? Uh, I, I think invoking humor uh, at the appropriate time is a really good way to make, to make, to relate to other people, but being able to kind of uh, be well-prepared, certainly going in, if, in into uh, any kind of session, uh, whether you are a participant or whether you're going to be asked to lead a meeting. Um, those are the things that really um, build the respect and credibility uh, for you as an individual by others. When they, when they see how you uh, present yourself, 
Um, and, it, it, and as I say, it doesn't mean that you have to be a robo administrator and have the perfect answer, but you do need to be well prepared. You need to respect and listen carefully to what others are saying and, um, you know, voice your opinion and your perspective very clearly. And you build upon that. Uh, so as you start off with the, as the junior person, um, you know, people ultimately, it shouldn't matter what your uh, what your age is, if you will, because what they're, they're listening to, you know, the perspective that you bring to the table, which hopefully is uh, presented clearly and in an informed way. Mm. And speaking, that's a good segue to the next question, which is who is someone that you admire and why? I, I have to say, um, you know, what there's many people here in the institution I admire for sure. And uh, it's going to sound a little bit like I'm, uh, you know, trying to uh, be a little bit um, obsequious here. But Dr. Brown is a, is a great example. Dr. Brown is our new president. And so uh, but he's someone that I have known for many, many years. And I've seen him rise through the ranks and I've seen his conduct uh, at various sessions. And one of the things I think that's mo been most compelling about um, him is watching him when he became a new chief of service and sitting in at the chief's council meeting. And he would always listen very respectfully. And he, he never had to be the first one in with his question. He would wait. And then he always was able to craft his question or his point of view in a very clear way and in a very concise way. And it made people, even after the first couple of meetings, really sit up and take notice. And you know, from there, it, it was no surprise that he started to be asked to chair certain committees and things of that nature. And his ability to, you know, lead a session very efficiently, you know, being respectful of people's time and asking for their input and perspective, um, and yet, you know, bringing bringing the meeting to, um, you know, appropriate decisions and appropriate closure. And you know how there was going to be follow up, and his ability to make sure the follow up actually happened. All of those kinds of things, I think, have led him to the successful position as president now. And outside of the hospital, I have to say it would be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, just for all the reasons we all know. She's just one of the most impressive human beings I've I've ever known about. Very yes, uh, both two incredible human beings. Um, you know and. You're in, you're in Boston, so I have to ask you this, uh, but what is your favorite sports team to cheer on? The Patriots. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Do you have a uh, book, an article, a podcast recommendation that you can share? Pick one. Just one. Okay. Um, I think I'd pick an article then. There's a great article on what's called Meta Leadership. M-E-T-A leadership. It's by uh, Leonard Marcus from the uh, Harvard School of Public Health. And I think it's particularly timely for those in healthcare these days where, uh, particularly on the, on the provider side, but not uniquely to the provider side, really talking about the importance of the multiplicity of relationships as we move from the traditional hierarchical approach to leadership to a much more um, uh, extensive and um, multifaceted component of leadership. It's a really good article. It's an easy read, and I think it has great applicability. My last question for you today is what, okay, one, you've given us a ton of great advice, um, but what is the best advice that you have received? It can be career, it can be outside of career, it can across the board. Be yourself, mm -hmm. just be yourself and your very best self, bring your best self to whatever endeavor you're undertaking. Hmm. I couldn't think of a better way to end this. Uh, and thank you so much for your time. I mean, one of the, one of the things I just want to say is, you know, 
from our conversation, you have a lot going on, but you're the person that I know has always invested into giving back um, to the next generation, whether that's participating in our administrative fellowship as one of our mentors, um, or just, you know, being a person that one can just go and talk to. So I just really appreciate and want to thank you for um, everything that you've given back to the community. Thank you, Yolanda. I really appreciate it. It's truly been a privilege. So thank you.